0: The Bob Murphy Show, episode 260. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to an episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today I am going to be covering something I alluded to it a few episodes ago, but I sort of did a cursory pass on the issue. And I had a couple people, at least after that, independently ask me, hey, can you cover this issue? And I even pointed one of them back to the where I thought I had already done that. And turns out, no, he <laughs> didn't do it well enough, Bob. So I'm going to do it again. And the issue is, what if we had a free market and the owners of a certain geographical region and that presupposes that suppose there were consolidations or wherever just some super rich guy comes along and owns a bunch of land. And then what if that person or that group of individuals established policies that mimicked what the state currently does? And then in that case, wouldn't that be just as bad as the state? And since at least in some versions of anarcho-capitalism, that would be a possible outcome. In other words, there's not like blanket prohibitions on what agencies what they can do. So, prohibitions is what they can do to you, then doesn't your system allow for the reintroduction of the state through the back door? Something like that, right? That's the gist of the argument. Or just sort of more colloquially, hey, you know, I'm in arguments with progressives, and it's one thing to talk about a limited government, constitutional republic kind of thing. But they know my ideas are that, hey, big business can do anything. And then they come at me and say, well, your utopia. Big businesses could just do the same sorts of things that the government does right now, and you cry foul when the government does it, but Wendy's can do it in your world. So what's the difference? At least in my model, there's some accountability. We have elections, whereas in your model, there is no accountability. The corporations have absolute power, and they can do whatever they want, and there's no checks and balances whatsoever. So that's why we like our system better than yours. All right. I saw a different version of this, not coming from someone asking me to explain it, but someone complaining about it. It was the guy, Nathan Tankus. I think his name is. He's one of the MMT people that's big on Twitter, at least. And somehow he got involved in an an ANCAP or an ANCAP maybe had chimed in on something that some progressive people were talking about and said, oh, no, in our system, yeah, we would defund the police. But that doesn't mean it would be a free for all everyone would have to defend him or herself from criminals. There'd be like HOA associ- homeowners associations and things like that. And privately funded security forces and blah, blah, blah. And this guy, Nathan Tankus was just, he said something like that is the most horrifying vision I have ever seen. And the idea that we would get rid of the state or get rid of the government, I forget what terminology he used and replace them with homeowners associations is chilling and should make any rational person flee from the room. Yeah. You know, it was, Not exact quote, but words to that effect. And so when I pressed him, because I was a smart aleck and said something like, if the world run by HOA associations is the most horrifying thing you can imagine, you need to read more or something like that. And so then he clarified and was saying it was the accountability issue. So I don't know if he had a bad excuse. (laughs) Show me on the doll where the HOA made you take your gaudy thing off the front lawn. But anyway, all these different strands made me think, you know what? I should just do an episode on this topic. But before I do that, this is going to be total value added. I'm going to give you a bonus. You don't even have to pay for this. I had a throwaway line, I think, two episodes ago. So I think it was in episode 258, the part one of my response to Curtis Yarvin's arguments that he presented on Michael Malice's podcast when he was in a debate that wasn't a debate with Dave Smith. And by the way, in case you don't know what I'm talking about, you think I'm, I'm not ripping on Dave. I'm not saying like Dave didn't show up or something I, What I mean is Michael Malice, when he, at the outset of the program said, Hey, I don't like debates. It just makes everybody real defensive. And I want this to be just more of a conversation or whatever. But there was a sense in which Curtis was there to debate Dave. So anyway, I said something like when I was setting myself up to go ahead and give my analysis of that exchange, I said some throwaway line like, Hey, not to confuse people, but I'm going to be here because Curtis and Dave were arguing over libertarianism And I said, so here I'm going to be defending libertarianism from the attacks of Curtis Yarvin. But don't be confused because I've been saying for a long time now on Twitter, I don't consider myself or I don't call myself a libertarian anymore because I don't want to be associated with those people or something like that. And I just kind of assumed everyone on planet Earth is an avid follower of my Twitter feed. And apparently that's not the case. So I had several people, including Dave, (laughs) say, what are you talking about, Bob? And so. Real quickly, this isn't a big deal, but just because I did have several people wonder what I was talking about. So, long and short of it is the tenets of libertarianism as a political philosophy. I am still largely in agreement with. I don't endorse every jot and tittle of standard canonical libertarian theory as laid out, for example, by Murray Rothbard and say the ethics of liberty. But I mean that's just because I'm a an independent thinker, and I probably wouldn't agree with just about anything unless it was maybe some statement from church fathers on the tenets of Christianity or something. Even there, I might not agree. It would depend on what it was. So there's that. And that's why if somebody from either the left or the right comes along and says what they disagree with about libertarianism, chances are I'm going to say, no, the theory itself is fine, and I can defend it from your attacks. And yeah, maybe in practice, the libertarians as people are guilty of whatever you're alleging, but the theory itself is pretty robust. But even so, if some random person who doesn't know me says, what are your views politically, I'm not going to say I'm a libertarian. And now, if I'm at a conference of various people who are pretty well-informed politically and they've read Rothbard and they know the difference between Rothbard and Hoppe and Hayek and David Friedman and da-da-da-da-da, then yeah, I wouldn't mind saying them the kind of stuff I'm telling you guys right now that, oh yes, I'm a libertarian. I've got my differences, blah, blah. but I'm just saying in general, some random person doesn't know me from anything and asks me, I'm certainly not leaning with that. And it was just a matter of over so the last several years, lots of people who have the banner of libertarian have just annoyed me or taken positions that I thought were crazy. And I just don't want to be linked to that. And it's not a right left thing. It's both. So during COVID, and this is not news. I, if you were following me at the time, you know this. I said it. My wife had or has serious lung issues. So we were taking COVID very seriously in the beginning, for sure. And just the attitude of a lot of libertarian was just completely obnoxious. And so, to, oh, so Bobby, so you were you became a statist because of your family? No, I was completely consistent. I didn't endorse the initiation of aggression on anybody. I'm just saying stuff like, Yeah, I was in the grocery store and I saw some fat lady putting Twinkies in her cart and she was wearing a mask. And I'm like, hey, instead of you forcing me to wear a mask, why don't you lose weight, fatty? I'm talking about stuff like that. For all you know, that lady is an avid Hoppa fan. And she takes the Twinkies home and stuffs them in her face after she takes her mask down so she can read up on Hoppa. Maybe she wears a mask because her mother has some lung issue and she lives with her mom and supports her because in between reading Hoppa... And Rothbard, she goes out and, I don't know, sells heroin and makes sawed off shotguns and sells them to militia groups. She could be the coolest right-winger ever, as far as you know. So there's that. But that wasn't what actually pushed. That just started making me think, oh, this is why people hate libertarians. Now I get it. It's not just because they despise liberty. It's because libertarians are jerks. Okay. And then from the left, though, it was when that, if you remember, Netflix... Took in and promoted this movie called Cuties, which was supposed to show the tough, gritty life of underage girls who were in a dance troupe and all these people want to sexualize them. And in order to get across how awful that was, the movie sexualized actual actresses who were underage and had them scantily clad and dancing around and people were making analogies like, well, that would be like a movie denouncing animal cruelty in which the German shepherds that were featured then got killed on camera but in any event and so some left libertarians were all rolling their eyes at the fuddy-duddy right-wingers and oh you guys you're always you're so uptight about sex and will not you you know the victorian era called and they want their uh prudishness back and it was at that point when again a lot of self-professed libertarians were saying americans need to drop their hang-ups over underage girls dancing on camera that i just said you know i i I don't need So I took that out of my Twitter bio. Before that, I had called myself like libertarian theorist or something, and I took the L word out and just thought, you know what? I don't need to be volunteering that. More substantively, because I'm a Christian, there's a sense in which I'm a monarchist. I serve a king. I have loyalty and obedience, and I am subservient to Jesus Christ, who is my Lord and Savior. And he's a king. He's the king of kings, in fact. Paul says he's a slave of Christ. You can argue over the translation. And what is that? You know, so I don't think of myself as a slave of Christ just because the connotation of that term and Jesus wouldn't want slaves in the bad connotation of the term. But in terms of, yeah, like, you know, how it's kind of cool. Like, even though he's evil, like the one cool thing about Darth Vader is his loyalty to the emperor and stuff. And, or if you're watching uh, the series Yellowstone with Kevin Costner, Fantastic series, by the way. I highly recommend it. And there's a guy, Rip, and you know, he does some some questionable things, but like it's really cool that his loyalty to his boss. So I'm saying it's that, except the boss is awesome, namely Jesus. Okay. And all he would ever want you to do is love people and do what is right. Like that's the hard thing he calls you to do. And it's like, oh man, my boss really is asking something tough of me here. What? He wants you to go rob a bank for him? No, he wants me to help this widow. And I kind of wanted to watch football instead. Okay. All right. So there you go. So that's another reason why I also don't even volunteer the term anarchist because there's a sense in which I'm a monarchist and certainly I'm not against authority per se. Okay. Well, that took longer than I thought it was going to, but let's get into the, the main topic. So first, again, the topic being what's so great about private ownership and if things are done in a, quote, voluntary context, if what voluntary merely means is in accordance with the whims of the property owner. And so you can come up with a scenario where the landlord is just as tyrannical as the mayor, especially because in your crazy framework, Murphy, one guy could own the whole city, like the land that the entire geographical region that we think of as Philadelphia, in principle, one person could buy that entire region and then just say, you know what? I, I saw some movie of Philadelphia, well, not the Tom Hanks movie, but I saw a movie about Philadelphia in the statist age, and I'm kind of a nostalgic guy, and just like some people like to get old cars and restore them, and hey, look at this. I would say a car, but what? 67 Chevy. I think that's a good one. I don't really know too many old cars. I took my son to a, well, they're two of my sons. I had them to an old car museum, and uh, actually, I had three sons. They were all there. <laughs> my memory just keeps expanding. We were all there and it was pretty awesome. It was in Florida, all kinds of old cars there. They were cool back then before the environmentalists got their hands on them. But in any event, so just like people nowadays, collectors can get old cars. What if we're in Rothbard land utopia and then some rich guy on a whim and a lark just says, you know what? I'm going to have this little area here and maybe you just like sort of like a museum, an homage to the past I went and had my research team go and we're going to just put in place the policies that were in effect back then. And if you come into Philadelphia or what used to be called Philadelphia, it's going to be like Philadelphia was including the people that I am going to call the police officers who are my employees because I own the land and I hire them. They're going to pull you over for a quote traffic violation and especially if you're a minority or something will beat you up and kill you or they could. And then if that does happen, it's going to be a lark folks just so you can get a feel for how life was back then. They'll investigate themselves and say that the officers feared for their lives. So that's what we're going to do. And so what's the response? Is that cool? Because Hey, they're the owner. They can do whatever they want. It's voluntary. And so the point of that challenge is to show the emptiness ostensibly of the libertarian or anarcho-capitalist if you want to use that phrase to be more precise in terms of what I'm talking about, which whose version of libertarianism do I mean, namely like in the Rothbardian variant. So what, isn't that showing the emptiness of that? Because it could reduce to the horrors of the modern state. There's nothing preventing that. And so surely you're not going to say it's just a definitional thing. Like surely the reason the United States dropping atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki was bad, if you think it was. It has nothing to do with who had property titles. Like, surely it was the mass slaughter of babies that was the issue. Not in a court of law would this stand up as consensual. Okay, so I'm trying to push it. So, number one, actually, you no, know, consent is important, and that is pretty fundamental. Yeah, you can rhetorically try to frame it, make it look like that's a silly little thing, But no, that's everything. So it's or maybe it's not everything, but it's a huge thing for sure. And that would prevent it because if the U.S. government had to get consent before dropping the atomic bombs, they wouldn't have been able to do it. And if you say, well, what if all the people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, including the infants, and I don't know how you would do that, consented to it? Well, okay, But again, that's like I mentioned this in the previous episode when I lightly touched on this topic. Take something like a mugging. Why is mugging wrong? Oh, it's stuffed. Okay. Well, what if I went up to a guy and we had an agreement and he agreed voluntarily that he was going to be walking down the street and I was going to go up to him and I was going to stick a gun in his belly and say, your money or your life. And he was going to hand me his wallet and I was going to walk away and I was going to get to keep that. And I said ahead of time, are you okay if we do this? And he said, yes. And I said, have you been drinking? He said, nope. I said, you have sound mind. He said, yeah. I say, who's the president? And he says, Donald Trump. And I high five him, say, MAGA, baby. And then we go ahead and do it. And in case foreign listeners are like, what the heck was that, Bob? I was doing a thing like he was establishing that the guy was competent and could meaningfully give consent. And so just to check that the guy was all there, like to say, what year is it right now? A standard thing in the United States, at least. Like if somebody woke up from a coma, he might say, who's the president, right? (laughs) just like, how long have I been out? So the joke was, you would expect me to say it was... Joe Biden but I didn't okay so suppose you do all that and for whatever reason the guy said yep I totally agree to that okay or maybe it's a there's some sort of fetish thing maybe somebody has a mugging fantasy I don't know it doesn't matter suppose he truly gives consent to what I just said and so they quote go through the motions of a mugging is that immoral and I would say no well maybe maybe it's immoral but is it a mugging No, is it theft? No, is it initiation of aggression? No. Oh, the mere giving of consent, even though it's the same actions? No, it's not the same actions. The actions aren't simply a description of the movement of molecules. Like there's a huge difference between if I'm walking on, on the kitchen carrying a knife and I'm getting ready to go chop some broccoli and I trip and it goes into somebody, the knife goes into somebody's arm in this crazy accident versus I'm mad at somebody, I go up and take the knife and slice their arm. Even though it's the same action, the results are the same, but the intention is critical in determining whether a crime was just committed or not, or an initiation of aggression, if you want to use that framework. Okay, so that kind of stuff matters. You can't be a reductionist and merely look at the material, physical facts of the mechanical universe to determine something like causality or legal culpability or criminality. Okay, so yeah, it is important. And it's not mere semantics. You can think of other possible crimes, which I won't get into because it's unnecessarily salacious. Okay, but same kind of thing where with consent, it's one thing. Without consent, it's something else. And yes, the consent really matters. That's not an incidental feature of it. Okay, so there's that. So yes, in a very important sense, if somebody set up, somebody in the year 2070, when we've got ANCAP Utopia and the current area known as the United States, and then some owner gets wealthy enough and buys up, either he's the literal landowner of all the area that's currently known as Philadelphia, or he rents it or something. He buys the rights to do whatever for a six-month project, and then recreates Philadelphia as it was in the year 2020, and then says to everybody, if you come into this area, you are consenting to what goes on here, then yeah, that's very important to say that that's a big deal now, just to think through, so part of what's going on then, if we say, okay, today in 2023, 20, not 2020, the reason I as an anarcho-capitalist in the Rothbardian tradition don't like what's going on in Philadelphia is because they haven't obtained consent. There isn't someone who's the lawful owner of all that land setting those policies. All right, And so, again, this isn't a mere quibble. If a mob guy goes to some restaurant and say, I want to talk to the manager. Say, hey, nice place you got here. It would be a shame if something were to happen. I hear things can get rough. You know, you go home at night, maybe a fire starts. Maybe something, a rock comes in through your window. My friends, my associates and I can uh, protect you. It'll cause this, my accent is drifting even as I'm doing this bit. I don't know why. Because I'm not thinking of something specific. And then you could say, hey, this is how the neighborhood works. If you don't like it, Mr. Business owner, restaurant owner, just leave. By you staying here, you are consenting to this framework where the guy from the mob family, the mafia family comes down and you call it shaking you down for money. We call it collecting rightful payment for defense services or protection. So mob guys probably don't read Rothbard. They probably wouldn't call it defense services. All right. And if you don't like it, you can leave. Just like the owner of Philadelphia in the year 2070 could say, if you don't like the way the rules are, then don't come in here. This is my property. And the essential thing is is that the mob guy's property? Back in the modern day example where the restaurant owner's getting shaken down. And if the answer is no, it's not the mob guy's property, well, then that's why it's a crime. That's why it's a shakedown. That's why he's stealing or extorting money from under duress or under the threat of violence, or at least property damage, if however you want to classify arson, from the legitimate owner. So There's a huge difference whether like as I'm recording this right now, I'm in an Airbnb. The owner has certain, I'm not allowed to knock out a wall and I don't know, paint the other room and do this and that because it's not my property. And if I did start doing that and the owner found out, they could have people come and physically remove me. If it's a house that I own, I have the right to do those things. And if someone were to come along and say, whoa, we don't think you should knock that wall out. And we don't like the choice of wallpaper you've picked for that room If you continue on this path, we're going to have burly men come in and remove you from the property that would be home invasion and kidnapping. And you say, well, what's the difference? And Martian, looking at the two scenarios, he's the same thing. And the fundamental critical difference is by assumption, by stipulation in these examples. In the first scenario, I wasn't the owner of the house. And I was just a Airbnb tenant or renter or guest, whatever you want to call it. And in the second scenario, I was the legitimate owner. And that's why in the first scenario, that would be the owner protecting his or her property from damage from some aggressive guest, customer. And in the second scenario, it would be a homeowner being kidnapped. And that's why, so, and you say, what's the difference? It's it's nothing about analyzing the bodily movements or the attributes of the property or the walls. It has to do with fundamentally the legal status because of whether the one person's the owner or not. All right, so... I can stop with this train of thought. I hope everyone gets the point that it really does matter who the owner is to determine whether something is just or not. Or at least the libertarian theorist is not crazy for thinking that's a really important thing and putting a lot of weight on that consideration. Okay, but now is a separate line of defense, if you will. It's not true that in general, private owners would mimic state policies or would mimic the policies that political and bureaucratic actors put into place when they're operating in a framework of what we mean by the nation state. So even though, in principle, if they did do the same thing, even there, that, quote, worst case scenario, I could argue, no, it really is not legitimate. But I want to say, in practice, it's kind of a silly thought experiment because it wouldn't happen. Just to illustrate the difference. So people want to get rid of the Civil Rights Act, all right? and I would support that, to get rid of that. And it's not because, oh, I'm a flaming racist and I want to just allow bigotry to flourish. It's, I think it's an illegitimate or portions of that legislation interferes with the prerogatives of property owners. And so, yeah, if some business owner wants to put up a sign and enforce a policy that says no Polish people are allowed to come into this facility, they should have the legal right to do that, I think. And then the community, of course, has the legal right to boycott that person and to not associate with them. And if the grocery store owner says, well, I don't want you shopping here, they can have the right to do that, too. You could say, well, gee, Bob, if individual store owners have the right to do that, what if every single store owner in the country said no Polish people are allowed to eat in this? Re- or what if every single restaurant owner did that? So now in your world, that means Polish people might not be able to eat in restaurants. And he said, well, yeah, but that's not going to happen. For one thing, Polish people could open their own restaurants at the very least. And the more people that had that policy, the more lucrative it would be for the remaining people who are in the restaurant industry to cater the Polish people and to ever, hey, you're welcome here. Just like, pick a different example. It used to be there was a guild system and or in, under socialism, the government tells people where to go work. And so back in the day under the guild system, I don't know this for sure. I actually haven't researched too much like the thoughts of somebody who believed in the guild system, but I'm imagining part of why they thought that was necessary was, well, gee, you got to make sure with each new generation, enough people go into each occupation. Like what if nobody wanted to become a smith? What if nobody wanted to become a doctor? What if nobody wanted to become a teacher? What if nobody wanted to grow tomatoes? That would be disastrous. And so we as modern people could explain to them, no, 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 no. People should have the unfettered ability to choose whatever occupation they want or nothing. Maybe they just live off of charity or live off their parents or whatever and don't worry about it. And they say, well, what if there's not enough people going into raising horses? Oh, well, then market prices and wages would adjust and that would become much more lucrative. And so people on the margin who had skills that could, they would shift into it. And then the upcoming generation seeing the possible career paths and then being told, holy cow, look at this no pun intended, holy horse, look at what you could make. If you raise horses, then more people who had some of you know, the disposition to do that, the aptitude would then go ahead and get trained in that area. And that might sound pretty risky to somebody who was used to there being some kind of official mechanism to make sure the outcome wasn't a disaster. If it was, no, 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 I let everyone choose and don't worry. And then actually it'll be better than if you tried to centrally plan it. That would sound nuts to them, I'm guessing. Okay. And so Likewise, if somebody is really sure that we need to have it be literally illegal for a restaurant to turn away somebody because of their ethnicity or whatever, and I come along and say, no, no, don't worry about it. Let owners do what they want and prices will adjust. And in fact, especially if you're in a society that has a lot of racists or whatever bigotry against a certain group, the last thing in the world you want to do is have democratic elections put in power politicians who can then pass blanket rules because that's how you get concentration camps and extermination programs. If you're an unpopular minority, you want to be in a free society where it basically takes a unanimous opinion from everybody else and they have to ignore huge profits such as their hatred for you. That's the kind of society you want to live in, not in one where the majority gets to implement their will on the minority through the political process. Okay. So let me give some more specifics though. Let's look at taxes. So yeah, the owner of a certain geographical region could say, everybody who lives here has to regularly send me tribute, monetary tribute. And you might even have to fill out a postcard showing me what your income is, and you got to send me money based on this formula. All right, so they could have a quote income tax. There's nothing in principle stopping that from happening. Again, as long as everybody voluntarily agreed to that system on the front end. Well, even in that framework, it would be stupid to set the tax rate above the so-called Laffer point, right—the point at which government revenue is maximized. Right. So, if the government or the owner said, "Give me 100% of all the income you earn," then there's no incentive to earn any income, and so the tax base would shrink. Why would you go work if you had to hand over literally 100% of it? So, we know that if the tax rate set at 100%, revenue is zero dollars. On the other end, if the tax rate is set at zero percent, revenue is also zero dollars, and so. There's some point or possible points in between zero percent and hundred percent taxation that maximizes government revenue, right? So that's a quick and dirty argument for the Laffer curve. Now, those mere observations don't establish that it's actually a curve, like a nice smooth thing. I could be all kinds of, you know. I've said this in other contexts, right? You could say if it's zero degrees Kelvin, there's zero tax revenue, and if it's a thousand degrees Kelvin, there's zero tax revenue. So there must be some temperature in between those two ranges that maximizes tax revenue. And that doesn't seem as compelling an argument, does it? All right. so there you go. But in any event, to the extent that there really is a point at which higher tax rates, other things equal, lead to lower total revenue to the collecting agency, political institutions could do that because among other reasons, their officials don't pocket the money. Whereas an owner is like a king. And this, by the way, the stuff I'm getting at now, is why Hoppe thinks that hereditary monarchies have more sensible policies than democracies. Because the king, especially if he can pass on the estate to his heirs, has the incentive to think really long-term and to maximize the value of his assets. Whereas in a democratic model, it's more of a temporary caretaker. And so if the person is not noble, they don't have the incentive to maintain the long run value of the assets. Okay. So, especially if you're thinking long range maximizing tax revenue, then the owner would have the incentive to make the rates less punitive to foster growth rather than let's just try to extract as much as possible in the short run. Another example would be like forest policy. Okay. So, all these environmentalists where they talk, a little, oh, look at the, what's that called? called clear cutting. I'm blanking on what the term is, where they just very rapidly just cut down all the trees rather than a more conservationist approach where you cut some, but then you you replant and whatever so that the forest isn't just wiped out. You want to maintain its value over time. If you're a private landowner and you have timber, you don't want to completely deplete your asset in one or two seasons. You want to keep it so that it's healthy and robust for the foreseeable future. So that, you know, you can use it and then sell it to somebody else when you're on your deathbed and it's still indefinitely productive. But if you're just in office for four years or eight years and you have control over auctioning off logging rights to private lumber companies, well, you can give them sweetheart deals where they can come in and quickly cut down trees and pay you for that right or they owe you one and then you get out of office and then they give you a consulting contract or something. And just the incentives aren't there that the people who lose out, in a sense, are like future office holders or the future taxpayers, however, you want to frame the entity. But they don't have as much influence right now over what's going on. Because again, the person in office temporarily, like the bureaucrat who was appointed by somebody who then might lose their job if the rival party comes into power, they don't benefit financially from doing what's in the long term interest of maintaining the asset value. When I was an undergrad, I was in a debate. It was about privatizing the ocean. Well, it, it was no, it was about what to do about the ocean's resources. And so my debate partner and I, for the affirmative, had a complete privatization proposal that, oh, the way to maintain the natural resources in the, o- in the Earth's oceans is to privatize the oceans. And we were undefeated with that because <laughs> the other teams, like it was such a crazy idea to them. They didn't even know how to, didn't know what to do with it. And as you can imagine, by the time I was an undergrad, I was pretty good on my feet with coming up with objections to private property. And so we were crushing people. So we were going over the argument and I was explaining like the problems with state conservation policies. So they would do goofy things like, oh, there'd be some lake and they would have things like fishing seasons and various rules about, oh, if you want to go fish, you can do that, but your boat can't have them. A- motor on it or the motor's gotta be a certain can only be a certain size. And if you're using nets, they can't be too efficient. You know, so it was like crippling the ability to efficiently harvest fish from the water rather than just setting prices to say, well, if you could catch this much, we're gonna charge you this much and blah, 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 or you know, setting quotas. And after we've sold this many fish this season, the price goes through the roof kind of thing. Instead of doing that, they just had these sort of arbitrary rules to limit the productivity of the fishermen. And it was just crazy. It would just lead to absurdities. So people would go out and fish in very unproductive ways and they would still overfish because the rules weren't actually getting to the heart of what the issue was. They were just like roundabout ways of trying to limit how much fishing occurred rather than just setting a market price that could go way up if too many fish were being harvested that season. And so we were explaining that to this kid that was like listening to us while we were practicing and working on our material. And then he said, Well, well, how would the private owners do it? And I explained, you know, oh, they would just set prices and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and well, what about poaching and stuff? Well, no, they would, you know, the owners of the private lake who care about maintaining their fish stocks and they wouldn't want to run out or whatever. They'd want to maintain that for future harvests just so that their revenue wouldn't dry up. And they would it would be they'd have the incentive. They would hire rangers and whatever to really make sure that people weren't sneaking in at night and fishing against the rules and da, da, da. and so he and he just said well okay all the stuff you're saying for what the private owners would do how come the government doesn't do that with the public lakes and the answer is well because the private owner if they go to the trouble of maintaining all those policies they reap the benefits if they keep the lake productive so that year after year it continues to throw off a sizable income they get to keep it whereas the people making the decisions for the state-owned lake, their salary doesn't go way up. If they come up with some tweak that yields an extra $300,000 a year in revenue, it's not like they get that in their paycheck. That would be embezzlement. They'd go to jail if they did something like that. And so they don't have the incentive. I don't have to argue that, oh, they know the right thing to do and they choose not to. It's more subtle than that. It's more like, because the system is the way it is, the kind of people that could figure out how to run this lake and really turn it into a a productive asset, they're not going to be attracted to, quote, public service and want to be a bureaucrat in charge of setting the fishing rules for a public lake. And they get a modest salary, but it's a very cushy job that they're never going to get fired from unless they're a serial killer. That's not the kind of position that attracts some real vibrant entrepreneur who's a go-getter and wants to come up with an idea and implement it Tuesday. They would go nuts being put in a bureaucratic framework where... You got to have a committee sign off and everything after six months of debate. And even if you're right, nothing happens except maybe you get an award at a ceremony in December, not that your income triples. Okay. Other examples of this stuff, gun control. And I go over this in my book, Chaos Theory. If you've never read Chaos Theory, you really should. It's free. I'll put a link. So again, folks, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 260. So what I go over in the book is that the typical arguments between the left and the right are somewhat silly. And if you took some of the rhetoric on gun control from the right wing seriously or at face value, in principle, it sounds like people should be able to own nuclear, and I said nuclear, not nuclear, bombs in their basement. And until the point at which they unleash the bomb on an innocent person, nobody can do anything because, hey, I'm a peaceful person. If you make owning nuclear bombs, criminal, only criminals will own nuclear bombs, right? And that seems kind of crazy. And the person on the left says, that's nuts. That can't be right. So your principles, your rhetoric are clearly overblown. And we're just talking about common sense gun reform. Nobody wants to take your guns. So the answer to that is private property. Let owners set whatever rules they want, throw it in the marketplace and bam, sensible outcome occurs. That takes into account the different motivations and desires of all the relevant parties, all the stakeholders, if you will. And so, for example, in a high crime area where there's a lot of people trying to break into dwellings, an apartment owner who said nobody in my building is allowed to own even a handgun for self-defense would have less demand, particularly if the policy were known, right? (laughs) Because then the people breaking in would know, oh, yeah, go to that apartment building because nobody in there is going to have a gun, or at least they're not supposed to, right? So that wouldn't work very well, but it might be okay in a you know real safe community in Kansas or something. I don't know if Kansas is safe. It just seems like it is. Probably safer than Philadelphia. And I know Kansas is a state and Philadelphia is a city, right? So that's fine. Nobody is going to say you can have a nuclear bomb in your apartment so long as you're criminal history checks out. We're going to do a background check. No one's going to say that because the liability would be too big. And that'd be a separate issue for us to get into what's a liability. But in general, I think there would be issues like that where if you had some, same thing with like, if you want to operate 747s flying over densely populated areas, again, this takes us too far afield from the current conversation. But I think regardless of what the specific armchair libertarian natural rights are in practice, you would have to buy permission for the flight paths and things like that. And you'd have to prove your safety record to be able to fly anywhere near a big city, or maybe you just wouldn't. You'd fly around, who knows? That kind of thing. So likewise, I think at the very least, just as the landlord could say, hey, if you want to hang up a poster, you got to use the sticky adhesive stuff. Don't use nails. Otherwise, we're gonna, you're going to take that out of your security deposit. No partying after 2 a.m., no smoking. They could also say, no hydrogen bombs, sorry, and that's not some crazy violation of your Second Amendment rights. If they can tell you not to smoke, they can tell you not to have a hydrogen bomb. All right? But notice conceding that doesn't open the floodgates to complete gun bans in Nazi Germany because everyone was disarmed. Like I, that's what I said with the building in the high crime area. If the landlord said, you're not allowed to own handguns if you live in my building, The landlord would have the legal right to do that, but I just think they would lose business to some other landlord that would say, yeah, it's okay, you can have a handgun. Or, you know, I'll do a background check on you. As long as you're not a convicted, violent criminal, yeah, I don't care if you have a handgun, this is a high crime area. Then that person would get more tenants or they would be willing to pay more per month for an apartment that had that policy. And so that's the way things would get. So you would not get the extreme where nobody, the landowners across the entire Region would all agree, no one's allowed to set foot on my property if you have a gun. And then, oh, wouldn't that be the same thing as basically gun control, Murphy? In principle, it could happen, but just like not every restaurant owner is going to say, no one Polish can eat here. Likewise, not every property owner is going to say, no guns allowed. All right. Similar thing, like with DUI, that I've seen some libertarians say, oh, the state having checkpoints and giving you a huge ticket or even taking away your license if you're just caught driving while drunk even if you haven't hit it, but you haven't violated anyone's rights just because you're driving. And that's goofy. And I can understand why someone on the left would think that's insane. You got to wait till somebody plows over a bunch of kids waiting to get on the bus before you take action. You're not allowed to say you can't operate a motor vehicle on the road if you're smashed. And so I agree there's a slippery slope if you let the state do it with quote public property. And that's why in a free market, The owners of the roads would be able to set whatever policies they wanted. And that would balance the desire for privacy on the part of the customers with the desire to not have reckless driving and damage to other customers from the perspective of the owner. And that's why you wouldn't get some crazy outcome like Checkpoint Charlie and the state drawing bodily fluids out of people against their will and searching their trunk and if they find cash, they take it and, hey, prove you're not a drug dealer, that kind of stuff, which is what this state does right now. Or on the other extreme with people stumbling out of a bar and being drunk and getting behind the wheel and, no, nope, we just got to sit here and wait for them to kill somebody before we do anything. In general, any kind of public good would be solved in this way, right? That the owner would have the incentive to do things like provide military defense or build a public statue or something, have fireworks on the 4th of July, if that's your thing, right? So Because it would increase the property values, right? So a lot of the alleged market failures that supposedly require state intervention fall away once you just acknowledge, no, there could be private property. And that's why you want the ability of a single owner to consolidate and control all of the area. Again, it doesn't mean they need to be literally the full owner of everything, but maybe they somehow capture the upside. All right, so real quick, and I use this, the journal actually rejected it. They didn't say it was wrong. They just said it was like too narrow of an argument. But I wrote this up once to say the use of, what was it? Something like the use of call options to solve the free rider problem in military defense. So the idea was, oh, in a large region with the free market, there's going to be an underprovision of military defense, particularly against things like incoming ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, because it's the kind of thing where, yeah, you can have defensive weaponry. You know, you have a uh, Patriot missiles that go up or you have the so-called Star Wars progress satellites up there with lasers that knock down the missile. But it's the kind of thing if there's a missile coming in, that's going to take out 10 city blocks and then the space based laser knocks out the missile well, then everybody is spared. It's not that just the people who contributed to the building of that space laser get saved and the other people who didn't get blown up, right? And so the concern is, if that's the way it works, well, then why would people contribute? Because they're going to, quote, free ride and say, no, I'm not going to contribute to the space laser because enough of my neighbors will. They're going to build it and then I'm going to be protected from incoming missiles, even though I didn't have to pay anything. And so I said, well, that can't be an equilibrium that we just don't build it because everybody free rides because now we are sitting ducks for incoming missiles. And so the property value is not going to be that high. No one's going to pay a lot for a piece of property if they know there's a good chance an incoming missile is going to blow up anything that's on it. And so in that environment, then, if nothing else, here's what would happen to disrupt that equilibrium in a genuine free market is investors would come along and then buy call options On all the property in the region. So, right now, if the land is, let's just make them see, you know, there's property that's selling for $100,000, like this is the land. And then someone comes along and they buy a call option to buy the land at $200,000, right? So, it's saying, I have the right, but not the obligation to buy this piece of property at $200,000. And right now it's selling for $100,000. And so the current owner is going to be happy to sell that right? So they're not selling the land. They're just selling this contract, this option that says the person who holds this option has the right, if they exercise it, to say to me, you have to sell me your land for $200,000, even though right now it's got a price of $100,000. And so the current owner is presumably going to be willing to sell that thing for a pretty low price, right? Because again, if they were borderline, if the market value of their property around $100,000 and someone says, how much would you charge me?" if I wanted you to give me a contractual guarantee that if I wanted to, you would have to sell me your land at $200,000. You probably wouldn't charge that much for that thing because you would be happy to sell your land for $200,000, right? So the person does that, the investor goes around to lots of the big landowners in the community, gets those types of call options on lots of the property and doesn't have to pay that much to get those options, right? Because again, he's setting a price that's way above the current value. And so the people aren't going to charge that much for that thing because, yeah, why wouldn't I sell to you for this ridiculously inflated price? And this is in the original equilibrium where there's no missile defense because of the free rider problem. And now the investor goes and spends whatever it is, the $10 billion to install a state-of-the-art defense capacity against incoming ICBMs. And now all the land that was previously completely vulnerable is pretty well protected. And so the land that was originally the particular piece of land that was originally $100,000 now jumps in value to $400,000. And so the investor now doesn't need to buy the land, but that option that he holds, because remember it allowed him, it gave him the right to buy the land at 200,000, which we now suppose is selling for 400,000. So now that option is worth $200,000, just that one call option. Because again, it's land that is selling for 400,000. This option gives you the right to buy it for two. So the option itself is worth two. And so remember, he paid a little bit just for that thing. And now by his actions of investing the 10 billion, has made that one option jump in value from whatever he paid for it originally, 500 bucks or something, to now it's worth $200,000. And he has a whole portfolio of such options that he acquired on the cheap originally when no one knew what he was doing. And now by his investment in the missile defense, boom, he has just made that portfolio of options that he was holding skyrocket in value. And so, of course, the numbers would have to be such that it would justify his $10 billion investment in the missile defense. Okay, so that was the kind of thing I spelled out in a journal. I sent it to some journal, and like I said, they came back, and they didn't say it was wrong. They just kind of said, well, that's a pretty particular thing. And then they referred to so-and-so in 87, did something that kind of sort of is a framework to handle your stuff, and, blah, 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 and I just dropped it. You'd be surprised at how many cool ideas I've had that the journals haven't published because, well, it's not wrong, but, you know. So anyway, there you go. So that's just kind of showing the framework and how it is that, yes, so the big picture in practice, if some private owner wanted to mimic state policies, he could, and then would that be okay? Well, there's a two-pronged defense. Number one, yes, strictly speaking, consent is pretty important, and that does change things, full stop. But then number two, in practice, the things that we don't like about state policy, because usually it's the kind of thing where, yeah, there's a good intention behind it at least that's why the public supports it. Like there is some noble cause or some understandable thing that's trying to be addressed with that, even if the people introducing the legislation have ulterior motives. But in practice, it either they go too far or the way they implement it is bad and people get hurt or there's no accountability. Blah blah. blah. All those things are handled much, much better in a free market voluntary framework. Okay, with that, I will wrap it up. Thanks for your attention and I'll catch you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.